we, we started First John, but we haven't really uh, taken kind of the big picture yet. We haven't um, gotten a snapshot of what the book is about. Um, I've been kind of in the weeds a little bit, and it's not fair because you, you, I think that it would be really helpful to have like one key, one way to approach the book and really get a sense for everything that's going on. And so today we're going we're gonna to do a little bit of that. And to begin, I'd just like to mention to you, you may not know this, but there are 90 million evangelical Christians in the United States of America. 90, okay, 89 million, I'm rounding up. But it's pretty close to 90 million. Um, that's something like 30% of the population of this country. Uh, 30%, 29% of the people in this country identify as evangelical Christians. Now, that's a lot of people, and that's a very large percentage of, of, the, of the country. And, and, and if you were to imagine, like, any time that you have 30% of a population, you would expect that that, that uh, population would, that minority of the, of the population would ha- exert significant influence over the population as a whole. 30% of Americans identify as evangelicals. 30% of Americans believe that they are not going to die. 30% of Americans believe that, okay, they might die, but they're going to come back. 30% of Americans believe they're going to live eternally with God. They have eternal life. Now, that seems to me like that should be an unstoppable army. That should be a whole bunch of people who have nothing to lose and who have no fear about anything at all. And yet, if I were to ask for a show of hands, I'm not going to, but if I were to ask for a show of hands, and I were to ask you the state of the church in the United States of America, the evangelical church in the United States of America, I bet most of us would say, well, it's probably in decline. It's certainly on the defensive. It's, it's not very strong, or at least not as it used to be. Maybe we have an image of what it was like back uh, at a previous time. But certainly whatever it is, it no longer has the cultural power and influence that it once did. It no longer is an implacable army. It is a group of people who in a lot of ways are on the run. Moreover, if you're like me, you may, or a lot of us, in fact, I'd, I'd say probably most of us, believe that you have eternal life. You believe that after you die, you will be raised to life when the Lord Jesus comes back and you will live with him forever. Now, some of us may not know that for sure. Some of us may be like, well, maybe, I hope. Okay, fair enough. And some of us may be like, yeah, I don't think so. I, that's not me. Um, and that's okay, too. Uh, but, but a lot of us profess this belief. I profess this belief. I believe that I'm not going to die. And yet, if I'm being honest with you, I still struggle with all of the things that people who do believe they're going to die struggle with. I too sometimes lack hope. I too deal with anxiety and fear about the future and about my life. I too worry about whether or not what I'm doing has meaning and purpose. I, too, am not always the steady, calm person that I ought to be. I'm not grounded all of the time. In fact, I, in a lot of ways, in a lot of the time, don't look that different from somebody who has no claim to eternal life at all. And maybe you're a little bit like me. And maybe that is kind of a strange disconnect, right? A class of people who really believe that they have eternal hope and yet live day to day as though 
that made no difference. What impact does eternal life have on our day-to-day experience? Does it? Does it have any? Well, I, I think that that's kind of what First John is about. This book that we're going to be going through is answering this question. What impact does eternal life have today, right now, here, for me? And as we go through, we're going to investigate the, the, what eternal life is. And I think we're going to start to understand why there's this disconnect in our lives between what we believe to be true about the future and what we experience daily. We're going to start to understand where that comes from, why that exists. And I think we're going to get a shape, a picture of how John is going to answer that as we move through this book together. So let's uh, begin with a text from First John. We've looked at it before. I want to look at it a little differently today. This is 1 John 1, 2 to 3. John says, this life, he's talking about Jesus, he's talking about the life of God. This life was made visible, and we saw, he claims to have been there, we saw and witnessed it. And now, I've seen it, I've witnessed it, I'm announcing to you the eternal life that was with the Father and has been revealed to me and to others. We are announcing what we have seen and heard to you so that you might have union with us. For indeed, our union, our participation, our fellowship is with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. John's promising that eternal life is here. It's now. But what is eternal life? Really, what is it? It's funny, the New King James oftentimes translates everlasting life. Well, I thought it'd be kind of helpful if we started to look at where the term comes from, if we get some historical uh, access to it, the way that it was used um, before the time of Jesus, during the time of Jesus, so that we would understand what Jesus was talking about, what people would have been hearing when they heard this term eternal life, what John would have uh, been talking about with his church in Ephesus as he was explaining to them eternal life. And if we get it, if we understand it, I think that we're going to start to recognize why that disconnect exists and how to begin overcoming it. So first, let's take a look. Um, It's actually not in the Old Testament at all. The Old Testament only uses the term eternal life once. In the book of Daniel, um, it's up here. Um, These are some ancient texts. The the language behind eternal life in Greek is zoe ionios. Zoe is life, and ionios, we'll talk a little more about that, can be eternal. It can talk about age. If you see in in ion, you can almost hear our word eon. Um, which is a word for an age or a time, a period of time. Uh, that word uh, can mean that, like a, a time or an age. So uh, uh, the life of the age, uh, the life of eternity, the everlasting life. Well, this is what Daniel has to say. Daniel says, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life. Notice New King James, everlasting. It's really the same thing as eternal. Some to shame and everlasting contempt. Well, uh, notice one thing. This is something that's going to happen in the future, right? Those who sleep in the dust will awake. You're going to come back, and you're going to have this everlasting life. But notice, notice that um, if you're thinking of a contrast, right? Everlasting life, what should that be contrasted with? Everlasting death, right? But it's not. It says shame and contempt, right? Some to everlasting life, some to shame and contempt. Indicating that when we're talking about life, we're not talking about our heart just beating. We're not just talking about breathing here. We're talking instead about a quality of life. Something that's going to be a a way of living. And and there's this way of living and there's this way of living. The shame and contempt way. The bad way. 
That's the only instance we have of this uh, phrase in uh, the Old Testament. Of course, the Old Testament is in um, Hebrew and Aramaic occasionally. Um, this is uh, Zoe Ionios is the uh, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. But in either way, in in both, this is really the only place where we get eternal life. So, in order to give us a little bit deeper understanding, I thought what I would do is is, is draw out how this gets uh, used in what's called intertestamental text. Okay, these are texts that are written in between the time of the Old Testament and the time of the New Testament. Uh, these are not scripture, this is not the Bible, but it is Jewish religious thinking, and it helps us to understand how this word was used, what it kind of meant, and, and how people sort of thought about eternal life. So let's take a look at, at a couple. This first one is from 4 Ezra. This was not written by the prophet Ezra, this was written long after Ezra was dead. Um, and it's, it's kind of a, it's an interesting, weird text, but it does have some, some value for us. And let's just read a, uh, this, this right here. But the day of judgment will be the end of this age and the beginning of the immortal age to come in which corruption has passed away. We don't know for certain what the Greek behind this text is. We only have it in Latin, but um, we're guessing, we're pretty sure that um, age, when you see that, that's that ion, that ionios, that word. And that immortal, we're pretty sure, is probably eternal. Um, And so there's this notion of there's the end of this age, and then there's the immortal age or the eternal age that comes. So eternal life is not just, uh, it's something that's that's happening. There's there's a a future to it, and it's going to be when the world is right, when the world is different. Right now, the world is finite. It's broken. It's greedy. It's corrupt. It's dark. This this new age is going to come, and there's going to be a different way of living in this age, a way in which corruption has passed away. Here's another um, text. This is First Enoch. Not written by Enoch long after Enoch was gone, but um, we just title it this way. It says, um, oh, I'm sorry, we're going to, oh, Psalms of Solomon, my bad. Um, Not written by Solomon, but um, uh, long after Solomon was dead. But uh, this text says, this is the portion of of sinners forever. But they that fear the Lord will rise to eternal life, life eternal. And their life shall be in the light of the Lord and will come to an end no more. This eternal life. Well, it's two things. It will not end. So that's cool. It's endless. We want that. That's nice. But it's also in the light of the Lord. I think probably um, this is maybe a symbolic use of the word light. It might not be, but I think it's probably symbolic. Where The idea is that God um, shows us the right way of doing things, right? God's light illuminates and, and, and helps us to understand how things ought to be. And our life, our endless life, is going to be done like that. Finally, our lives will be illuminated by the light of the Lord. So there's this future age. It's going to be endless, but it's also going to be characterized by exactly the way that God wants things done. Uh, here's another. Um, back, I think we're going, are we going back to 4 Ezra. Yeah. Um, because it is for you that paradise is opened. The tree of life is planted. And here it is, that age. The age to come is prepared and look, listen to what this age is going to be like. Plenty is provided. A city is built. Rest is appointed. Goodness is established. Wisdom perfected beforehand. In eternal life, there, there's going to be a different quality. You know, this world is racked by wickedness. This world is racked by, by lack and pr- uh, lack of provision. This world is restless and it's, and it's dark and evil. This age that's coming is exactly the opposite. And when that comes, your life is going to be just right for that kind of place. Last one, we'll move on. This is First Enoch. Blessed are you, you righteous and elect, for glorious shall be your lot. And the righteous shall be in the light of the sun. You hear that again. Um, and the elect in the light of eternal life. 
The days of their life shall be unending, and the days of the holy without number. Glorious, right? The light of the sun. This, this unending life is going to be good and right and perfect. Well, if we're following kind of the, the way that eternal life is being used, we recognize that there's really two aspects to it, right? And this is the first thing in your note sheets. Eternal life is consistently pictured as both unending and appropriate for the age to come. So eternal life isn't just, I'm going to live forever. It's also, I'm going to live this way. I'm going to have a life that's like this, and it's going to be different than the life now. It's going to be fuller, more robust. There's going to be something special about it, some quality to it that is just unfamiliar to those of us who live in the here and now in this place. Now, John takes a little twist on this. Jesus, really, and then John take a twist. They've inherited this kind of usage of eternal life, and then something remarkable happens in the Gospel of John, and then in John's uh, letter, 1 John. Just hear a few of these things that John says. And this is the testimony, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Did Did you notice the change here? Past tense. Right? We've been talking eternal life in the future. It's the age to come, then this wonderful time when life is eternal, and and someday we're finally going to get there. And now John says this, God has given us eternal life. It's in our hearts right now. He who has the Son has life, not will have life, right now, has it, in the present, as we experience life. It's right there. It's, It's buried in your belly somewhere. It's in you. It's, it's pumping in your veins. If you have ever believed, just for a moment, in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have life running through you that you may not be accessing, but it's there. It's a part of you. God has given it, and it's eternal. It's endless. It doesn't stop. So if you've gotten it once, you've always got it. It's right there. It's, it's hard to find sometimes. Maybe you're not accessing it, but it's there. Listen to Jesus in, in the gospel. This is John 3.36. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. Not the age to come. Don't wait for it. You don't have to die. It's right here with you now. He who does not believe in the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Later in John 6, Jesus says this, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has eternal life. If you are here and you have ever had a moment where you trusted Jesus, it lives in you forever. You will not die. You're going... You're. You have no choice. You might go kicking and screaming, but you're going to heaven. Now you're like, I don't, it sounds like a terrible place. All the singing and the wings and the clouds, I don't like it. I don't want it. Tough luck. You're headed there. Deal with it. And so we, we're sitting here listening to John. We're like, well, this is fantastic news. The eternal life is living in us. What's it like? Tell me about this eternal life. And what we expect when we read 1 John is that he's going to tell us, right? He's going to give us a list of of do's and don'ts, this and that. This is what we do. John's good news to us, John's good news is that eternal life is right now. It's the next thing in your note sheets. It's right now. It's here. This is the gospel, the change, the shift. And now we're like, okay, it's right here. It's right now. What's it like? And so we, we turn over, you, you open up First John, and you're like, ah, and it, you shall not do this, you shall do that, you shall not do this, you shall do that, right? Isn't that what First John's like? I've been studying it because I'm writing a book about it, and it never does it! You're like, John, tell me more, man! 
I want to know what this life is like. It's interesting. Um, you've heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Dead Sea Scrolls uh, were found um, in the 20th century, and it's mostly a, uh, an almost entirely complete um, copy of the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, what we think of the Old Testament, and also some other um, texts from this community. It's kind of a, a, almost like a cult, sort of a Jewish cult, that lived in the desert um, in, in, in Israel. And, uh, and, and they were roughly contemporary to the time of Jesus. And they actually thought a lot about eternal life and the age to come, all that stuff that we were talking about. And they thought, well, what we need to do is we need to live the eternal life now. We've got to start living this way. There's a text, you can Google it, it's called The Community Rule of Qumran. And it literally is a list of all of the things that a person who has eternal life does. So they, um, everyone's celibate. So, I, yeah, a lot of you here are, you're not living the eternal life. Um, sorry. Some of you are, and good job. Um, there's other things, like, it, it, it kind of lists out the time that you have to wake up, and, and the sort of, like, you know, how you do everything. It's very, very complicated, very specific, very strict, and it tells you this is what eternal life is like. And they were wrong. But we're sitting here first, John. We're like, John, okay, man, I believe it. I got it in my belly. What's it like? Tell me. He doesn't. At least not like that. Which is weird for us. Isn't that what we really want? We want the bottom line, right? We want the list. Hey, I don't want to dedicate any more time to this. I just want the answer, teacher. Please, just give me the, 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 the straight action. Just tell me what it is. And then I won't have to think anymore. I don't have to work anymore. I'm just going to have it. I live by it. And then I'm set. I'm done. I'm, not, I'm, I'm finished. All it is is just effort after that. Isn't that what human beings want? Isn't that what religion is supposed to be, right? And yet, that's not what we get from John. We want to know what the eternal life is. And he doesn't give us a list of do's and don'ts. It's the next thing in your note sheets. Eternal life can't be reduced to a list of do's and don'ts. You might be wondering why. I'll tell you why. I'm, very, I'm personally hurt. Um, you guys have hurt me a lot today. I walked in here. I greeted several of you. And not one of you kissed me. I haven't greeted my wife yet, so I didn't even get a kiss from her. And yet, and yet, I know, because I know my Bible, that in Romans 16, Paul says, and greet each other with a holy kiss. I'll tell you what, when we're done with this thing, I'm going to stand right there. You guys come up. It'll be a lot of fun. I don't want to say that I'm great at kissing, but I give myself a B+. Plus. <laughs> I guess it's not my opinion that matters. Or, or, or this, I also, I, I've been with many of you for years, and not once have you ever taken my shoes off and washed my smelly feet. And yet I know, Jesus, you know, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. Well, I mean, these are Mickey Mouse examples, but you get it. Time, culture, things change, right? Human beings, we're bound to time, we're bound to culture. And so what makes sense in, in one place doesn't make sense in another. The life of the age to come, the eternal life, it doesn't always look the same in every place. In fact, it might even be radically different in some ways. I mean, 
think about it, you know, the holy kiss thing, the, the foot washing thing, very different. So it might be the kind of thing you can't just list out and say, this is eternal life. Moreover, uh, for those of you who know um, Hebrew, the Hebrew for spirit, the spirit of God is ruach. It means wind, breath, right? Why is that? Well, it's because the wind of God is like all wind. It's unpredictable. You never know where it's coming from or where it's going to go. It's surprising. It's interesting. You're like, I did not see that coming. That's how God moves. God doesn't move in a predictable, easy-to-figure-out way. Do you know, newsflash, there's a football game today. Said the Super Bowl, uh, all the pros, uh, there was not one national uh, predictor of NFL stuff. You can tell I really follow football. Uh, that predicted that the Atlanta Falcons were going to make it to the Super Bowl this year. They went 8-8 eight and eight last year, and, uh, and nobody predicted that they would make it to the Super Bowl. Except for my brother-in-law, who apparently put like a $5 bet on them to win the Super Bowl, but the odds were so enormous that he can win 250 bucks today if they, uh, if they, if they pull through. So, you know, go Falcons. Um, I'm not, not, not that I'm going to see any of that, but uh, I, I think that's true. I'll find out. Um, at any rate, no one, knew, no one knows, right? History doesn't work like this because the, the Spirit of God is unpredictable and surprising and moving in new and exciting ways. And yet when they happen, we look back and say, oh, that really is God, the same God who saved Israel, the same God who, who ransomed us through the cross. That he, he's, he's, he's up to his stuff again. We didn't see it coming, but there it is, and it really is him. The eternal life can't be a list of do's and don'ts because the eternal life is for people in time people in culture. The eternal life comes and is moved by a spirit that's unpredictable and exciting. And so if that's the case, then what should we expect from 1 John? How is John going to help us understand eternal life if he can't just give us a list of do's and don'ts? Well, I think, I think, hopefully, um, I, I got some, some pictures of, some, of a cool, cool guy to help us understand this. Oh, there he is. Does anyone know who that is? Wow, Orson Welles. Apparently he's very famous. Um, I, black and white movies, meh. Any movie made before 1977 is, as far as I'm concerned, kind of a piece of garbage. Um, oh! 1977, Star Wars A New Hope came out. Pretty much nothing in the 70s except for that and maybe Alien. Uh, really, 1980s when movies start getting good. But once, uh, once I, I was curious, and so I, I saw um, Orson Welles' most famous movie, the greatest film of all time, according to most critics. It's called Citizen Kane. Terrible film. I mean, best movie of all time, please. This movie, I'm serious, the whole movie, if you haven't seen it, the whole movie is about like this rich guy who's um, bummed out because he had a bad childhood. And you're like, whoa. You know, gripping the seat there. Wow, I mean, I could go to the movies. I could see a movies about like robots, you know, from space, transformers, like fighting aliens. That's way more interesting than a rich guy who's bummed out about his childhood. Uh, Citizen Kane couple of shots from this movie. Check this out. Check this out. Look at that. That's neat. That's cool. Let's do another one. Wow. I mean, gripping stuff. I know. All right, next. Whoa! 
He's walking down the stairs, in case you're wondering. Yeah. Another one. I think we have one more. Whoa, trippy. trippy. That's a little bit of Stan, Stanley Kubrick there. That's amazing. Like, he, he's walking by the mirror, and you can see him a million times. The reason that Orson Welles' Citizen Kane is considered one of the greatest films of all time is because before this movie, it came out in, I think, 1941, before this film, most movies um, basically just kind of had these flat shots, you know, just kind of, hey, there's two people walking. It's level. You're looking at them. You're watching, okay? And that's it. There was nothing more to it than that. It was just a series of these shots, okay? Orson Welles, in Citizen Kane, his first uh, major film, did something fascinating, he, he began to use these bizarre camera angles. We just saw a few of them, right? Where you take these really mundane things. I'm walking down the stairs. But it's, it's jilted, and it's a little bit strange, and, and, and it shakes you as an audience member. You're watching it, and you're drawn to it. You're like, whoa. It, 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 it shakes you up and forces you to pay attention. Um, one of the other things he did is he would um, get his shots, and we saw a few of these such that shadows and shadowing become really stark. And so your eyes are drawn to things that you might not, have, um, might not actually be the center of the action because of the way that shadow and darkness plays in the individual um, shots. Now, why is it and how is it that Orson Welles was able to do this? I'll tell you. Orson Welles, when he was a kid, and then when he was starting out in his career, when he was like 18 years old, loved comics. Yeah, he loved comics. And he actually wrote for comics and pulps um, when he was a young man. And so he started to think in terms visually about comics and the way that comics work. Um, one of his favorites, he, he talks about this in, um, in a number of interviews later in his life, is called Terry and the Pirates. It's right up here. Look at those shots. You, you see that, that car? It's like, it's like that down, jagged angle. You see the shadows in, in that center one that, that really pick out. It's like the, the, there's, 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 you're not sure what's going on. It's exciting. Um, in the top left, the way that the blackness of the city makes um, the, that, that silhouette just pop out. There's action and there's movement to these comic book images. Orson Welles apprenticed himself to the comics. He started out as an apprentice. He didn't know how to tell a story, and so he learned from the stories that he loved. And so he began looking at Terry and the Pirates, and he began thinking in, in, in those ways, thinking about drama in those ways. And the way that, you, you know, anytime an apprentice, apprentices, when they, when they start out something, they begin as knowing nothing, as being completely without any skill. And so, if, for example, you become a blacksmith, you, you start out as a blacksmith, and you don't know how to, you don't know a horseshoe from a hand grenade. That's not how that saying goes. Sorry. Uh, but presumably, you find someone who is a master blacksmith, right? And you spend time with that person. And that person gives you kind of the basics and says, well, you're going to do this, you're going to do that. Ah, no, you, you're going to want to stay away from stuff like that. You're going to want to move towards places like this and kind of shapes you and guides you, right? And then at a certain point, at a certain point, once you've spent time with that master blacksmith, you move to a place where you're able to change and think and innovate. Orson Welles treated as his master the comics. This is uh, Milton Carniff, I think, was his favorite comic writer. Milton was his master, and Orson was the apprentice. 
Every apprentice needs a master. That's in your notes. Every apprentice needs a master. You might be expecting me to say, our master is Jesus. Okay, yeah, sure. But really, as we're going through 1 John, John is going to be the master. He's the one, did you notice in that text, he said, we saw and witnessed and heard. We've experienced and seen this eternal life. We're announcing it to you. We're going to spend time with John, and he's not going to give us a list of this, that, but he is going to give us some guideposts, some signs, saying, stuff like this, yeah, you're on the right track. Stuff like that, uh, things might be going off the rails. But he's not going to say, do this, 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 and this, and don't do that, 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 and that. That's not how he's going to operate. Because he understands that time and culture shapes his people. He understands that the Spirit moves in surprising and creative ways. And he understands that as we move through, as we work at eternal life, that that living the life of the age to come isn't something simple and easy and you check off the boxes. Instead, it's like learning to make movies. It's like learning to think in, in, in different and strange ways. Apprenticing yourself to someone who has mastered it. And then, over time, As Orson Welles did, the interesting thing about his work is that he started out in comics, and then he saw the value of innovation when he took what he saw in comic books and moved it to the movies. And he did something fascinating that no one had ever seen before. It's honestly kind of ironic that um, nowadays, for the last 15 years, all the blockbusters are comic book movies, right? And you think about, you know the reason for this? You know why comic book movies are so popular? It's because... They give directors and actors and special effects people the opportunity to show audiences something they've never seen before. Right? I mean, if you want to do something special and and, and neat and wonderful, well, you've got to come up with something. I don't know, this guy can fly, and this one can move back and forth in time, and this one can, you know, all these crazy things that people do, that's what makes it visually exciting and interesting. It's innovation. And these people, just like Orson Welles, apprenticed themselves in the craft of movie making. And then at a certain point, they came to a place where they knew what to do, and they were able to innovate and bring their, 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 their learning into a new environment, a new time, a new culture. And so they can change the way that movies are made in a way that's fresh and visually exciting and engaging and compelling for audiences today in a way that wouldn't have been for audiences of yesteryear. It's the same reason I watch Citizen Kane and I fall asleep. And when they first saw Citizen Kane, they fell out of their chairs. We are setting ourselves at John's feet for the next however many months it takes us (laughs) to get through this thing. And in so doing, we're going to be listening to a master. He's going to shape us. He's going to give us some some ideas. This is what the life of the age to come is like. And he's going to ask us to apprentice ourselves to it. This is kind of the, the, the last thing that I'd like for us to think about. Are you willing? Are you, a will, are you willing to apprentice yourself to John? Are you willing to apprentice yourself to the art of eternal life? It's inside you right now. And for every single one of us who's believed, there's an element to which we're living and there's elements to which we're not. Are you willing, over the next however many months when we're with John, to think about the art of living the life of the age to come now, 
sensing the movement of the Spirit, the innovation, the changes, the differences that our lives will take. We're not slavishly devoted to the past. We're looking instead to the future, and yet at the same time, we're consistent with the past. When I was talking about this um, with our staff, one of the things they kept bringing up over and over is they said, how interesting are the lives of missionaries? People who encounter the gospel and, and, and have these wild, exciting visions of what could be things that no one's ever done before, opportunities that have never been experienced, never taken, and yet the power of the gospel and the movement of the Spirit intersects in their lives as they do something fresh, something innovative, something wild, something interesting, something beautiful and creative in keeping with who God is and go and change the world and make it better and, and, and more in keeping with who, who God is in his nature. They, they listed out all the famous ones, um, Hudson Taylor and Adoniram Judson, um, David Wilkerson, there were others. But in my heart, I kept hearing over and over, Robin and Karen Wood are missionaries who came from this congregation and made Camp Allendale, which we prayed about this morning, a place where kids who have been beaten and abused in every possible way go and are heard and healed. When Robin and Karen started that ministry, they were really rich. Uh, apparently, um, Robin used to drive a Porsche, which sounds awesome. Um, I've heard they're a lot of fun. I wouldn't know. Uh, and yet the gospel took hold of his heart, and he said, I, I can see my life shaped like this. Okay. But God, I want it to be shaped something different, something fresh, something new, something innovative, something radical. And, and he, to this day, hasn't looked back once because he found the place where the eternal life could be lived in his life. Friends, over the next several months, we're going to be looking for the places where eternal life can be lived. And hopefully, it'll be surprising and exciting, a journey that we can take together. Let's pray. Father, we pray that we'll be able to sit at the feet of a master who knows what it's like to live eternal life. Pray that your spirit will be stirred up in this congregation to surprise and innovate, to change and excite, to stir us up to a life that you've called us to live, a life that's bold and it's fearless and it's exciting a life shaped like your saints, but fresh and new for 2017. God, we thank you for the gift of your word. We pray that your eternal life will descend in exciting and surprising ways in our hearts. Apprentice us to eternal life, God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.